This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Miss the show, no worries. We've got you covered on point and on the podcast. Donald Trump may be gone, but just because you lance the boil, the poison remains. And as one conservative strategist writes, Canadian politicians shouldn't just listen, but they can't let what we saw last week, the opportunity go to waste. And the Trudeau government may designate the Proud Boys a terror group. The question is, do they meet the threshold? And then why stop there? And the WHO gives out all sorts of advice, which might work well in dictatorships, but that does not mean it will work in a freedom-loving democracy. Let's get talking. We're going to see some real turbulent waters over the next couple months. We're doing everything in our power. The healthcare workers, the hospitals, the public health units are all doing everything they can to make sure we vaccinate as many people as possible. Mass vaccination won't happen till April, May, and June. Oh, the music's such a nice touch. And while curfews are off the table, we head into another state of emergency, and uh, that getting vaccinated by June is a complete lunatic fantasy. Alex Pearson with you on this Monday, January 11th. Hope you had a, hope you had a weekend, you know, because we head into this new week that feels a lot like last week. I'm sure uh, a lot of you out there as parents continuing to enjoy the never-ending uh, links to e-learning. Hmm can't speak for anyone else out there, but I sure would love to know how young is too young to drop out because this is proving to be really challenging. It is like it is like dealing with a never-ending plate of spaghetti of insanity, and I can't follow which link is for what class, what class is when, where to find it, where to go for homework, where to submit it, and I know I'm not alone in saying that turbulence does not even begin to characterize how stressful this whole teaching your kids working at home is for parenting. And now it's clear that, you know, there's no real relief in sight because, you know, we do get our new modeling tomorrow, the chair, you know, fall off the chair modeling numbers. And what we know so far is that um, they'll put in these emergency powers back and it looks like we're going really back to the first wave measures with uh, things like manufacturing and constructions either closing or slowing down. Good news, though, curfews are said to be off the table, which is good. I know a lot of people think, and I don't know why, maybe they're from Venezuela, but apparently a lot of people think martial law is needed, but it has never proved to work. And you ask me, it is a very slippery slope when it comes to um, protecting our rights in the greater good, the long term. I mean, I don't know what you saw coming out of uh, Quebec this weekend, but my God, I mean, you can't even take your dog for a walk without getting a ticket. Give me a break. But the bottom line is it's, it's never proved to work. So why bother putting it in? And I get it. At times, we should be willing to give up some rights to protect the greater good. But we are now 10 months into this thing and nothing's worked of what they're doing. And it's the only go-to tool for our experts. But I want to know, like, what is the goal? 
Is it to get to zero cases? This is what they're trying to do because that's a fantasy. That is not going to happen. And so I'm getting the impression that they're just preying on the vaccine to save us. And yeah, that is months, months away. And I think for a lot of us, you know, who really are doing their best to play by the rules, you know, it's like you're on the football field. You're like so close to getting in that end zone and then the goalposts just keep moving further and further away. And I'm going to talk about the vaccines more in a minute because I think the Trudeau government has missed an opportunity again. But I want to talk a little bit about something that I wanted to dip into last week but didn't get a chance. But this is our other health crisis. And it's talking about like the health of our democracy. And what we witnessed last Wednesday was gross on so many levels. And I don't care how much you love Trump. Uh, there's nothing more that you can call that than domestic terror, okay? And he bears responsibility for his part in it. And then over the weekend, I was watching some of the video that came out showing just some of the most unhinged people ever. And I say that about Antifa too, because I think they're nutty too. But you've got a cop being dragged to his death. You've got others who are looking to kidnap politicians. Like, what were you going to do with Nancy Pelosi? Tie her up and what? Put her in your... Like, what was the plan? But some of the accounts are just unbelievable. And those people aren't conservatives, okay? They don't represent conservative values. They don't represent anybody I know. They were animals driven by ideology. But last week, the prime minister spoke up about it. He was very critical of the event. It's not gotten a lot of attention, but... He has every right to criticize and speak out and condemn it. That's fine. That's not what I had in Ishbit. But I want to play you a part of his criticism that I simply think does not jive. And it's when he said this. Canadians expect debate. Debate in service of all Canadians. Debate that is grounded in a shared acceptance of the facts. In a diverse country, there will always be diverse perspectives. And it is through respect for those differences that we create a stronger Canada. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. A strong democracy has to have debate. He's right. I just wish he would practice what he preaches. Because that guy, that's the guy that fired two of his top ministers for challenging him. You know, Jody Wilson, Ray Bold, and Jane Philpott. That's the guy who... You know, Selena Cesar Chavez quit in protest because he wouldn't even hear her views. That's the guy that when the opposition conservatives challenge him, the go-to strategy is to play identity politics. I mean, you, you question immigration, you're a racist. You bring up the issue of abortion and you're stealing women's ovaries. Question anything about you know, converse, uh, conversion therapy legislation and you're an automatic homophobe. Identity politics is a cancer, full stop, period. And it is a regular feature in our politics. It's this weaponization of words, and I think it's really dangerous because it stifles debate under the guise of being politically correct and kind. And what it's doing is destroying our democracies. And I tend to believe it helped lead to the rise of Donald Trump, who was seen as someone who would push back against it by those who are sick and tired of being accused of things that they're not. So the sooner all the sides of the aisle stop playing to this, I think, you know, the faster we will heal the divide. Because how can you have a robust debate 
on important policy decisions if the go-to weapon is to silence your opponent by canceling them. You take the conversion therapy, for example. Conversion therapy is bad. It shouldn't be a thing. But there are pieces in that legislation that deserve to be questioned. And we should be able to have a conversation about it without having someone accuse you of being homophobic. That's not debate. That's identity politics. I mean, there are now a whole bunch of topics I won't even touch. That's why I barely touch Trump. But there are a whole bunch of stuff I won't talk about because to do so means I'll either be canceled, smeared as a racist, or who knows what. Maybe I'll get doxxed. How is that healthy in a democracy? And I know a lot of people are very excited that Trump was silenced by big tech over the weekend. But then Twitter started purging, you know, others. They decide are too dangerous. I lost about a thousand followers. I mean, I don't really care, it's, uh, but whatever. But I lost a thousand followers. And then you've got the other app, Parlay. It's not Parler, it's Parlay. It's French for speak. Um, but this other social media app that a lot of people on the right have turned to because they didn't want to deal with Twitter's censorship. And now that has been dropped from several platforms. And those who apparently are on it are now being referred to as alt-right. I'd never heard of that. Look, these companies can do that. It is their right to do that as a private company. But let's just be honest about what big tech is doing. It is only shutting down one side of the conversation under the guise of protecting society. What it is is censorship, period. And you may be perfectly okay with it. A lot of people are, sadly. But you have to remember, today it's my voice. Tomorrow it will be yours. And it's very clear that there's an election coming. Because you need only look to Twitter to see the smears coming fast and furious. I mean, just follow Adam Vaughn, the liberal MP, the backbencher, where he's tweeting out the only radicals he's worried about are radical conservatives. He's suggesting Aaron O'Toole is an extremist because, oh my God, Aaron O'Toole was wearing his military bomber jacket, which he called a hoodie. Then you got Catherine McKenna tweeting out a rebel tweet claiming a non-existent interview that it did with Aaron O'Toole. And she tweets it out suggesting he's radical. The interview didn't even happen. But her tweeting that, fake news, makes it a truth. And then it goes around the web and it fuels the fire. It fans the flames. And those people are part of the problem. And now, of course, there are calls, you know, for the Trudeau government to declare Proud Boys are terrible. Okay, have at her. I don't care. I mean, if they qualify for the designation, they should be. But then why isn't the same designation demanded of other anarchist groups we've seen, like those who shut down our national rail lines in the spring, or Antifa, those who have taken over Portland, Oregon as their personal war zone? I mean, yeah, it sounds like a whole bunch of whataboutism, but let, let's just be honest about what's happening here. Because politicians continue to gain support in both Canada and the United States by demonizing and you know selecting bad behavior while ignoring others. And then you got to wonder why we got someone like Donald Trump. Stamp out the cancer of identity politics. Otherwise, we are doomed. Oh, those infamous words, stand back and stand by. So are the Proud Boys a terror group? Well... According to Jagmeet Singh, leader of the NDP, they are, and he wants the Trudeau government to label it such. And the Proud Boys is a neo-fascist men's rights and male-only group. It's actually a 
Canadian creation, founded by a guy named uh, Gavin McInnes, who rejects the description. But in November 2018, he ended up quitting the group after the FBI reportedly classified the Proud Boys as an extremist group with ties to white nationalism. And they've appeared um, at such events alongside other hate groups as uh, gatherings like Unite the Right. You'll recall that rally in Charlottesville where a woman was killed and is said to have been involved in the planning and rioting of Capitol Hill, where five people have since died. And you may recall those famous words Trump said when he was asked to denounce this group and other nationalistic groups during the election. What we got was that message, stand back and stand by. So are they a terror group and should the Trudeau government label them one? David Harris is Director of International Intelligence Program at Cygnus Strategic Programming. He joins us now. Good to have you, David. Thanks a lot, Alex. So this is obviously a big issue. It has been for some Mm -hmm. time since Trump uh, has been in power. Do the Proud Boys meet the threshold of a terror organization? One of the difficulties is, of course, figuring out whether any organization, or for that matter, individual, would uh, meet the definition of what we call a listed entity. That is, uh, an individual organization by whose actions um, have uh, turned them into candidates for uh, inclusion on that uh, terrorist list. And to get onto that list, the entity has to, under our law, and this is, of course, a legal consideration, uh, have knowingly carried out or attempted to carry out or participated in or facilitated a terrorist activity. Or uh, they have, uh, in some way, knowingly, again, that key word, acted on behalf of organizations or individuals who behaved as uh, described. Um, This is really a challenging thing, far more challenging than many of us would ever imagine, because you can have an organization and maybe one of the most reputable organizations. uh, (laughs) We don't need to talk about the Proud Boys or any number of other outfits uh, where you have individuals within it who may have been responsible for acts that would fall under this kind of uh, criminal law related designation. But does that mean that the whole organization uh, could rightly under law again, it's not uh, about sentiment or emotion, be so designated? And this is where it gets enormously complicated. The implications and uh, results of designation are really quite profound. One could almost think in terms of that old phrase, internal exile. You uh, would have a great deal of trouble uh, undertaking various financial activities. Um, banks and the related organizations could have all sorts of reporting requirements imposed on them and may not choose to have anything to do with you. I, in the modern age, one wonders how you would even survive on that level. Um, so you've got a lot of that going on here. And there is always hovering over any kind of related decision, the political considerations, to what extent are governments likely now or in the future, in the future in relation to organizations or individuals yet unthought of in some of our discussions, uh, going to be inclined to, uh, say, respond to political pressures by designated uh, individuals or organizations in this way. And that becomes a a really difficult uh, situation. There can be some appeal processes, but uh, not many of us want to 
uh, be engaged in uh, legal appeal processes that could cost uh, hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars for the privilege of demonstrating that maybe we shouldn't have been listed. Uh, we've seen some examples of these kinds of difficulties in Canada in the past. And there is, I have to admit, some mixed thinking about the Proud Boys. Yes, they may be insalubrious. Uh, their leader may have various adventurous financial activity to his credit. But again, whether it meets the legal definition is another matter. And, you know, if we start talking about Proud Boys, where do we wind up with Antifa? Um, as I was reading some of the descriptions by those condemning uh, the Proud Boys, uh, my mind started to drift to uh, what many have said about elements of Antifa. But are the sorts of condemnatory things said about the, in this case, left-wing Antifa, uh, are they representative of the organization at large? Can we even speak of an organization at large? Uh, is that the case with Proud Boys? Uh, is there a really effective, well-defined hierarchy that enforces various values. What do you make, and I'm thinking of this as a lawyer, what do you make of the fact that if today you go to the website of the Proud Boys, the first thing you're greeted with is the most homey photograph of a black and white biracial couple with their apparently biracial children whom they are cuddling, in a kitchen. Um, is this cover? Uh, if it's cover, then what are the implications of that? If it's not cover, what do we conclude? Has the organization shifted in a way that would material, materially shift what should be our proper ordinary view of the organization and perhaps as well our legal perception and action on it? Again, again you can see the, the struggle and we have to, I think, be very careful when we talk about groups as hate groups. Well, you know, it's not illegal to hate, and it may be illegal to act in certain ways on hate. But one of the strengths of Western justice, and that has led us to be in a position where we can so freely criticize authority and others, is that we have to judge people by their actions. And again, here, the Proud Boys, and it's been documented, have been involved. Certain elements of the Proud Boys in violence. I don't think there's much question of that. But so, too, certain elements of Antifa. Um, this tests us, and it tests us at a time when there's such great partisanship all around. So uh, those would just be some initial thoughts, uh, <laughs> frail and thought as they might be. And not to mention, and, and then you've got other groups, fringe groups like Black Bloc um, that have been around for a very long time out of Quebec. I mean, there are all sorts, you know, it's, it's can you shut these organizations down or do you just drive them further underground um, where they just develop and turn into something else, which I think is one of the um, concerning things about, you know, you remove a guy like D Donald Trump off the uh, internet and everyone's very excited about that. But I mean, you can you can pop the pimple, but, you know, if you don't get the infection, there, there's still a problem underneath there and, and that's not going to go away. There there, you know, people will find other ways or avenues, or maybe Mr. Trump himself will find other avenues to talk to people and, and get his message out. Um, but if we keep just censoring people off the internet, um, you, you drive that hate or you drive all of that to a, a place where we can't find. I, I prefer my hate right out in the open so I know what to avoid. Well, yes. And uh, the uh, terrible, in my respectful view, censorship by Twitter 
has now damaged Twitter immensely. We've seen that 12% drop in Twitter's value today on the markets. But far beyond that, it has actually helped those who embrace the narrative, not entirely without reason, that there's been extensive mainstream media censorship in the United States of certain conservative-type complaints. And a further difficulty is that once you get into the censorship in this day and age of the kind that we seem to be seeing with Twitter, and I'm not talking so much about the banning of President Trump as the banning or suspending of very much second-level, maybe third-order players that begin to look, for those of us who grew up in the old days and studied uh, a number of totalitarian regimes, begin to look like they have a purge quality about them. And at that point, you start finding people who might be fairly well-disposed and of good faith to adversaries and opposition saying to themselves, we cannot have our voices heard. We um, now are in a state where there again is this extensive censorship, and it seems to move in one direction. Um, let's set up our own uh, independent social media outlets of an analogous type, and uh, you know, let's talk. Well, we've just seen now Apple and Google, and I guess another entity. Uh, preventing the selling of an app for one of the best known of these alternatives, Parler, as it's called. So what, what happens then? Well, presumably, and I was talking to some Silicon Valley founders about this, presumably conservatives will set up other organizations that will be even more isolated and insulated from the mainstream, as in fact, those following Twitter will become more isolated and insulated from conservative views, with the result that both sides or everyone concerned will then live in an echo chamber. And we know how humans tend to operate when they're involved in self-feeding ideological and partisan mechanisms. Things get more and more extreme, and therefore you begin to ask, what is the purpose? Certainly extremism and uh, eventually, I uh, dare say, terrorism becomes a more pronounced concern. You end up with a guy like Donald Trump, and uh, so therefore, uh, there are the dangers. David, I'm out of time and up against the clock, but it's obviously a conversation that is not going away anytime soon, and I will call upon your knowledge uh, again to discuss. I appreciate it. Pleasure talking to you again, Alex. All right. Great to have you here with us on this Monday. And um, what we saw in Washington last Wednesday didn't just happen. I mean, this thing has been building. And I think it's been building over the last four years under Trump's leadership. It's been festering kind of like a boil and it got lanced. And then we see the result. But I've been saying this for a while, that identity politics, you know, where we have politicians scoring political points by weaponizing their words and, you know, calling opponents racists or homophobes or simply shutting down debate by weaponizing attacks, not only stops the discussion, but it unfairly villainizes opponents. And there's a very, very good piece that I think everybody should read in McLean's magazine that talks about this poison infecting our political system. And it points this out, you know, that just getting rid of Trump will not fix any of this because the cancer run deep, runs very deep. Andrew McDougall is a director at Trafalgar Strategy and a former head of communications to one Prime Minister, Stephen Harper. He joins us now. Good to have you, Andrew. Thanks for having me on, Alex. You talk about, um, you know, not wasting this crisis in American democracy. And you say, you know, the, the first step to removing the poison that, that is infecting our political system is to stop 
injecting it. And and you say that's both on the left and the right. Yeah, I think so, Alex. And I think everybody has seen or, or is talking about the, the problem on the right, which is it's obviously manifestly clear in, in what happened last week in Washington. Um, and and I think what I was trying to get at was that, that people would rather import that disease of American politics into Canadian politics, for example, with liberals liking to call conservatives like Aaron O'Toole racist, um, you know, or, or Trump light. And we've seen that with Doug Ford at the province of Ontario, uh, Jason Kenney in Alberta, and other politicians. And it serves their political interests, but it doesn't serve our, our public discourse interest if we, if we try to paint with this broad brush instead of calling things as they are and making our criticism specific and focused. And that just leads to a degradation in politics all around. And it gets to this kind of point now where we can't have a proper conversation because everybody just assumes the worst and goes to the nth degree uh, right off the bat. The question, though, becomes, you know, can we cure it? Because social media is such a um, power tool in the game of politics. And it, it is also, in my view, the biggest cancer infecting politics. I mean, it's it gives politicians a very big reach. But as long as they can fundraise off of kind of click, you know, like and um, click uh, kind of um imagery and messaging and bring people into their conversation their partisans it, i don't see it ever going away and that is the, i think it's a big danger yeah absolutely and I, and I think you know we we've kind of had these tools that have now been around you know for 15 or 16 years if you're looking at facebook and, and just under that for twitter and politicians were quick to see the upside of it and society in general mind you and they were very slow to see the downside and in politics, you know, the hardest thing to do is to step outside of your own comfort zone and your own bubble and to see a bit more broadly, to look down the pitch and see, you know, how do I build a bigger coalition? And what these tools do, social media tools do, is, is give us such exquisite ability to micro-target and focus, fundraise, in your example, or, or reach out and message to very specific demographics. And look, politicians have always done that, but they used to be able to do that kind of under the cover of darkness, you know? You know, you could go into Quebec, say, and say something that you would never say in English-speaking Canada, and the chances that it would be reported or, or, or cross that border were very slim. Now everything is out in the open, and, and politicians are, are kind of been seduced by this ability to, to bypass, you know, the news media and go straight to people. And what we're seeing now is a bit of that, a bit of the downside of that, because what happens when you self-segregate like that and speak only to your supporters uh, is you lose touch of, of the wider reality and you forget how to speak more broadly uh, and, and you get into trouble. And and what happened in the States, I think, was a long time coming. And all a lot of people, I think, in proper politics, you know, Republican congressmen, senators, etc., were willing to overlook uh, the damage that was being done because they didn't quite understand where these people were congregating that showed up on Capitol Hill. They weren't on, you know, Aitken or 4chan or any of these sewers that people are now going to to get their information and and they just thought they were supporting you know a kind of wacky president who was actually getting things done like appointing judges and, and cutting taxes and, and they missed the kind of revolution as it were yeah, I mean, we pay so much attention, and I wish Canadians would actually pay less attention to what's happening in the United States and more to what is happening in this country, because I don't think we're much better. I mean, you you, you cite, um, rightly so, issues like abortion, um, you know, as a wedge issue that the liberals love to use. But it's also immigration, you know, that's been weaponized to score political points, um, you know, all these big issues. And, and you know, it was just... Um, 
the other day that Trudeau came out and rightly condemned what happened at Capitol Hill uh, the other day. But then he said, you know, we must be able to have robust debate and disagree with our opponents. But he himself is hypocritical in that thought because he fires you know, his own MPs, when they disagree, they all have to fall into line. And when you actually do have a debate going in the House, you see how quickly it turns from debate to just this weaponization of name calling, whether it's Aaron O'Toole is a racist, you know, there's a picture of him wearing his, um, you know, his military kind of bomber jacket. And that's already been weaponized that he's some kind of like, you know, cozying up to the Proud Boys. I mean, it's subliminal, but to me, it is very, very dangerous. If we keep running elections on these issues, we're never actually going to get any policy discussion going. No, I, you're absolutely right. And, and you know, pick, pick immigration. You know, when there was illegal border crossings, think of the grief the conservatives took from liberals there for asking very valid public policy questions about control of the border or even in the coronavirus. You know, should we be shutting uh, air travel? And, and people kind of were quick to scream, you know, either racism or, 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 you know, just trying to, as you say, shut down the debate. And I think, you know, part of the meta frustration with being conservative in a place like Canada is, is this kind of shutting down of debate happens a lot. And it happens a lot through the mainstream press. And, and you know, if you look at Rebel and other kind of online outlets that have come, they were fulfilling a very legitimate gap in the Canadian media ecosystem um, that wasn't being well served by a lot of the mainstream press. And it's now just gotten a bit out of hand. And this is Aaron O'Toole's dilemma, you know, his voters care a lot about the issues that you just listed there. And he's got to speak about them in a way that is respectful while fighting on two fronts, uh, you know, from the left, Justin Trudeau and his and his party labeling him uh, all sorts of bad things because it suits their political agenda. You know, liberals win if they can talk about these issues. Uh, but Mr. O'Toole can't have that debate without worrying about how the people to his right uh, feel about that. And, and they feel a lot more militantly than I think Aaron O'Toole does about things. But he can't lose sight of his own voters. So he's got to address that in some form. But every time he does, you know, he answered a, a few questions from Rebel News about an exclusive they had. And that's been making the rounds on Twitter today. How could he dare do that? You know, when I was director of communications, I had to respond to questions from the Chinese uh, news agency, Xinhua. They were part of the press gallery. That, that, did I want to speak? The Chinese state media? No. Was it part of the job? Yes. And I think every little twist and turn now just gets picked apart or, or, or magnified and made into some great issue um, that, that it really isn't. And I think most Canadians don't pay attention to that level of detail. They just see their politicians yelling at each other and going, why can't everybody just do their job? And, and I think that's kind of, the, again, the bigger frustration with politics now that seems to devolve to these issues that everybody feels very passionate about, even if they can't quite figure out why. But it's a dangerous time because people are so fatigued and exhausted and um, financially hurt by this pandemic and or have lost loved ones in this pandemic. People are very raw right now, and we're going to be heading into an election within months. Um, no question about it. And there are some very serious policy issues that have to be discussed, financial issues that have to be discussed, the direction of the country that have to be discussed. And I just don't see those discussions happening in this current climate. I mean, Donald Trump, as you rightly point out, may be gone, but that anger even in the United States, is still there. But it, there's an anger here in Canada that seems to get ignored. Well, yeah, and, and I think this is where, you know, the danger for, if I were Mr. Trudeau, I'd be worried um, that, that I don't have quite the pulse in the nation, particularly out West. But then again, having said that, I don't need to keep my finger on that pulse because I can get elected without it. 
And, and I think Mr. Trudeau should try to, to not to indulge that sentiment. He should try to be the prime minister for every part of the country. And, and if there are criticisms to be made and policy suggestions to come, he should take them in good faith if they're made. And I agree with you. I think that, that the Liberals have clearly you know, spent a lot of money. Uh, they're still broadly popular with their pandemic response, and they can use that as cover even though uh, the vaccine virus is still rampant, vaccine uh, injections haven't ramped up uh, to the correct degree, and they're going to try to sneak an election in. And you can you can make a bet right now today that the Liberals will be out there front and center, still trying to stick the Trump label on the Conservatives because it's the playbook they have, and it's the playbook that works. It was the one they used the last election to squeak through, and they'll go for it again, 100% guaranteed. And Aaron O'Toole's got to show a bit of ability. Um, to start framing issues his way. I think he's doing that with China. That's a great issue to run on because um, that's a problem that Mr. Trudeau is not going to take on. But he needs to have a, a vision for Canada that, that's about more than responding to Mr. Trudeau's actions. He's got to set out his own stall, and, and that will be his challenge. And we can do that, and then we can have a debate, we can have an election, and, and Canadians can make a choice. Stay tuned. Andrew, I appreciate your time on this. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Great to have you here on this Monday. And without saying it, I think the Premier's made it very clear we're heading into another lockdown. This one likely tougher than the spring. We'll learn the details tomorrow. Will it work? Of course not. It may lower the numbers for a little bit, but then you open up again and the cases bounce back up. And we get this advice from the WHO, and now they're warning worse pandemics are coming. And, you know, we should all just take their advice. And that advice then gets parroted by all our leaders who then blame us for why we're in this mess instead of really what the main reason is, which is that those in charge, these experts, they're the ones who drop the ball to begin with. And then they keep dropping the ball, making very late decisions on things like border closures, rapid testing, late vaccine procurement. And then they break the the rules themselves that they make for us and then get mad at us for breaking the rules. And as my next next guest wrote in uh, the Toronto Sun, the bad decision-making and this failed leadership is one reason why people aren't listening, but these draconian policies that the WHO expects us to follow may work for dictatorships. They just don't work in freedom-loving democracies. Alex Vesna is his name, CEO of Prepared Canada Corp, and a graduate degree in disaster and emergency management. Good to have you, Alex. Good to be here again, Alex. So it's uh, reading over the weekend that the, the WHO warning, this isn't even the big pandemic. So, of course, that's worrisome in itself because we haven't done very well with this one. Uh, no, uh, we haven't. Uh, I'm not sure uh, what question you want to ask me there, but uh, in general, I guess, evidence as to why this isn't the big pandemic. Um, the Americans, for example, and uh, actual, uh, actually British Columbia have had uh, zombie apocalypse disaster plans, quite literally named zombie apocalypse plans, mm-hmm. which are uh, a, a, a public information campaign to dress up a, um, a, uh, a public health um, pandemic plan and teach people about flooding. But they've, but they've, they've looked at you know, 50% lethality or fatality rate viruses and the potential for them to be possible and the potential for how one of those could get released. Um, so no, this is not the, the 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 apocalypse big one. It's still significantly bad, but in uh, in my field's world, there are bigger things that we're scared about. And uh, the uh, the reality from this response is that when and if the big one does hit, uh, we definitely have a problem. 
Well, we had the problem. We had SARS, and we were supposed to learn from that problem. And then we were supposed to have all these nifty plans in place because we were told for weeks by uh, the health minister, Patty Hyde, that we're prepared and this is all low risk. And now we, of course, know that all to be lies and just foolery on her part. Um, but, you know, people have been trying to follow the rules, but they're never clear. Because those people who are in charge leave so many loopholes in, in these rules of what we're supposed to do that really now I think people have just checked out because it's nonsensical. And it's, we're not seeing results of these so-called lockdowns. So I, I think I partly agree there. Uh, the first thing is that in any major disaster that has an extended impact, you're only going to have people being fairly compliant for at most three months. And I, I think right. I talked to, you about this, talked to you about this before. And we were in the spring. Well, yeah, well, that's that's within three months, right? So that, the, the idea is when something's new and it's scary, people tend to be compliant. But then after given enough time, we were baking bread. We were we were hitting pots and pans. We were in it. Well, I know, but but you know, after enough uh, enough months, doesn't matter what the disaster is, doesn't matter your messaging. People basically aren't going to be compliant without you essentially forcing compliance, uh, mm-hmm. which is not conducive with uh, how people tend to define freedom uh, in a free society, which creates a very 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 large problem. Uh, the, the biggest issue I personally have, and I, a lot of people in my industry have echoed to me, uh, with the, the WHO's messaging specifically as to what the article has said, is that the, the, the blame is being continually placed on the public, and it's mm-hmm. not being placed on the messaging, or it's, it's, it's not, the, the blame isn't being shared. Uh, and I think it is very unrealistic to expect the public to all be basically trained in uh, what you would need to apply to med- medical school with mm-hmm. to really understand uh, a lot of these decisions to the degree that they, they almost need to be understood to really uh, buy in for the long haul. Right. And so if you were advising, um, you know, from the outset, fully knowing that there was a second wave we needed to prepare for, what would your messaging have been? Because I always say, keep it simple, stupid, and and be very direct. And, and I don't think we've gotten that what would your advice to get buy-in over a long term have been? Uh, well, frankly, it would depend on what strategy be, is being adopted. And we, I know we've talked about this before, but the, there's, there's some debate as to whether or not uh, it is possible in a free society to restrict, especially a free society with a border as large as ours that's not an island, if it's mm-hmm. possible to really reverse spread after the three-month period. Because uh, once people get... Uh, fatigue from whatever the disaster is, it, it may just not be possible at all. So it would depend on if the uh, the strategy adopted would be one where we're, at, we're trying to control it or we're not. If it's one where you are trying to control it, uh, the question I would have back to you is, uh, is the Emergencies Act enacted to empower me to make a decision or not? Because a federal emergency has not been declared in Canada yet, like a national right. emergency. So the reality is that the provinces don't have the ability to put in the enforcement measures that may or may not be even possible, but they don't have the, they don't have the, the grounds to really do what they need to do. Uh, for people who aren't familiar with the Emergencies Act, it's the spiritual successor to the War Measures Act. And, right. uh, anyone who looks into uh, the FLQ crisis there, or the mm-hmm. October cri- crisis with a quick Google will get an idea for what type of legislation I'm talking about. Yeah, we're talking about martial law. And and the prime minister has been asked several times, like, at what point are you going to step in? I mean, it's easy to blame the provinces, but we don't have a cohesive plan, uh, whatever that plan might be. And so will you enact these emergency powers? And he he will not do that. Certainly not when he knows he's going to go into an election in the next few months, but he he will not do that. Well, I mean, I think I've had this question come up many, many times, and I think it's a fair question that doesn't get answered. 
uh, not 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 by the interviewer, of course, but the, it's generally stated. Uh, and then uh, we go, well, why hasn't it been answered yet? And if this isn't a national emergency, then what is? Yeah, good question. Like, what? I mean, it's a good question. Well, I don't know what. I mean, I don't know what is bigger than than this. Well, they'll tell me. They'll tell me climate change is, is bigger than this, but it's not. Okay. I mean, we have an immediate well, well, present. Well, well, okay. Well, no. Well, well, look. Okay. So let's say climate change is bigger than this. Fine. Uh, climate change and pandemics and uh, uh, enemy invasion are all under the Emergencies Act. Fine. But, you know, look at the, take a look at what the impact would be. How could you define how many deaths is enough? How much impact is enough? How much potential risk is enough for it to be a national emergency? And there is an argument from some side that global warming is a sufficient risk to justify it. Many people agree with it. Many people disagree with it. But the question still is, what constitutes a national emergency? And if this doesn't, what does? So given then tomorrow we're expecting more draconian measures to be put in place um, and we're not expecting curfews at this place unless something changes overnight, I don't understand how we're going to solve what is not being solved with the measures we have in place now. Like what's going to change? Uh, in, 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 in actual effect, basically nothing. But I mean, every time we have this conversation, we usually end on me saying that we're screwed. Yeah, pretty much. So, I mean, the, the, once again, the reality basically is that if you're not going to put the necessary measures in place to ensure that your strategy is being followed at this stage in the game, the strategy is not followed. So, and there's a serious also argument that it's in effect counterproductive the same way that, uh, and I I don't know if I mentioned this with you or not, but the same way that abstinence is generally speaking not a very good uh, public health strategy when you're handling the AIDS epidemic or when uh, when you're handling, um, or how prohibition, frankly, isn't a really good strategy to handle mass alcoholism. Uh, when people are forced to do things in an unregulated environment that they feel a biological imperative to do or that they feel in their you know, genes that they have to do, uh, they will find a way to do it. And given enough time, everyone will get on the find a way to do it bandwagon. Mm-hmm. So, so you're telling us we're screwed. Uh, once again, yep, there we go. <laughs> well, we'll see what uh, happens tomorrow, Alex, and then you'll probably text me and say, see, I told you. Nonetheless, we'll see what these draconian measures are going to be and um, how much more frustrated it will make people. I always appreciate your time, Alex. Thank you. I always, always appreciate yours as well and expect uh, manufacturing to go down. Oh, that'll be good. Good that'll for the economy. Fun. Great. That'll yeah. be great. Yep. All right. Alex Vesna joining us here, CEO of Prepared Canada Corp. So we will wait and see. But I do agree. I do also think that manufacturing is going to be uh, shut down as well. You, of course, can join us live Monday through Friday starting 630 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on Point. This is Global News Radio.